It's now been exactly one year since the global pandemic changed our lives forever. It also marks a rise in hate crimes against Asian Americans that must stop now. In this episode, I speak with Indian American actress and singer Sheila Houlihan about dealing with grief on the COVID anniversary, how you can be an ally to Asian Americans in this very important time, and how being a creative actually affects your mental health and wealth. The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Thank you so much for listening to The Mental Health and Wealth Show. This is host Melanie Locker. And first of all, I want to acknowledge that you are brave and amazing for being here. Getting ready to listen to a show about mental health and money is not easy, and I know you are ready for these amazing conversations. But before you listen, I want to let you know that all of my content is based on my own personal experience with mental health and money, as well as the experiences and expertise of my guests. I'm not a mental health professional or a financial professional, so content should not be considered professional, medical, or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. So if you're currently in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm interviewing Sheila Houlihan, an Indian American actress and singer. Most recently, Houlihan played a supporting role in the Warner Brothers feature film, The Little Things Opposite Denzel Washington. In 2019, Houlihan had major roles in two films that screened nationally in theaters, Beloved Beast, a Lionsgate film in which she had a leading role, and Wallflower, a film hailed by Variety as one of the most haunting films of 2019. She is also an outspoken mental health advocate, and I'm so excited to have her on the show. Thank you so much for being here, Sheila. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. (laughs) It's going to be such a great conversation, and you're actually here, you know, for a very important reason to talk about something that's really relevant, which we're going to get into. But first, I wanted to say that, you know, I checked out your Instagram and you have this uh, sentence, make mental health care accessible for all, which I just love and think is amazing. And so I'd love to know, you know, what is your journey with mental health? How did you become a mental health care advocate? Man, I mean, so I think my story is similar to many folks' story, which, you know, breaks my heart. But having been in the system, it breaks my heart to answer this because I know that my story is not unique. But I am a, you know, I've been through my own mental health journey. I experienced the system firsthand. Uh, God, I mean, it took like a decade of healing to sort of uncover what my own relationship with my own mental health was. So having been through the system, I saw firsthand all of the inequities and all of the ways that it could work better for folks. And I know that, you know, it's no fault of providers. They're working within the same constraints of the system that is failing patients right now. It's more that mental health you know, we think when we talk about progress, we think of all of these like, wow, look at how this is advanced. Or now we treat uh, physical health care differently, or look at how we handle X, Y, Z. And mental health, it's like, it hasn't really changed much since deinstitutionalization. So, you know, just looking at that, 
it breaks my heart. And it's something where I'm like, we have the technology, we have the ability. So I don't know why we wouldn't make mental health care accessible and equitable for all. Like we can make it affordable. We can make access widespread and fill in those gaps. And so I'm encouraging everybody to have those conversations and and think through it and, and see like we can put our heads together and brainstorm how to make this better for everybody. Because while we're fighting the COVID-19 pandemic, this pandemic that has affected all of us is on the horizon as well. And it's important that we begin to have that dialogue. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And, you know, it takes so long to heal and it takes so much time to figure out what is actually going on with your mental health. And there are so many different kind of avenues when it comes to getting mental health treatment. You know, there's going to therapy, there's going to a psychiatrist and, You know, I've personally been to a private psychiatrist that I paid out of pocket a lot of money. And I've also been to a psychiatrist on my insurance where I paid a $20 copay. And the difference was remarkable. Of course, the person I paid a lot of money to (laughs) actually took the time, like half an hour to an hour to speak with me to kind of look at holistic care. And, you know, the one under my insurance, I would see for five minutes, I would tell them my symptoms and they would give me a prescription. And so, you know, I think there's so much nuance in the mental health field when it comes to treatment and how accessible it is, how affordable it is. And also, like, who are we treating? Who are we gearing this information, you know, to? And right now, it's so clear that with the pandemic, everyone is suffering with their mental health. Like, this is a a crisis right now. We're dealing with a mental health crisis because, all of our coping mechanisms are kind of gone or or disjointed or in a different way now. And it's something that's so important. So I'm really glad that you are an advocate and you are using your platform to share this information. Yeah, thank you. I think it is, it's interesting to hear you echo those sentiments. I, I think that, God, this is the first, I mean, I, I don't want to say it's the first time in history because we know that's not true. But it's the first time in quite some time where everybody is going through the cycles of depression, anxiety, and there are so many people who are unfamiliar with this. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the concentric circles of grief theory, but the deal is, is ooh, everybody's going to like it, so tune in. Um, When you are at the center of a traumatic event, okay, I want you to think about like, the target logo for me for a second or a dartboard. Yeah. <laughs> the center circle, right, is the person who has the center at a traumatic event. And then the next ring would be like family, close friends, chosen family. The ring out from there would be other friends. The ring out from there would be colleagues, acquaintances, you know, so on and so forth. And the rule with the concentric circles of grief is that you never ask a circle that is smaller than you for help with your emotional labor. Mm. closer to the inciting incident. Now, what's interesting to me is that we're in a time period where everybody on the planet Earth is at the center of that target. (laughs) Yes. Right? So all of a sudden, it's like we are going to need major systems in place so that people can get the care that they need and the help to move on this. Because I I disagree with a lot of folks. People are like, yeah, the world's going to open up again. It's going to be fine. It's like riding a bike. And I'm like, no. As you know, Melanie, as everybody knows who's listening, we're hitting the one-year anniversary mark Mm -hmm. for going Mm -hmm. into quarantine. And as they say in trauma therapy, once you hit that one-year mark, your acute trauma becomes chronic. 
and it changes your brain chemistry. Your amygdala enlarges. You have a more knee-jerk reaction for your fight-or-flight response. We're all going to be having actual real symptoms, even mild, of PTSD from this experience. And having the whole earth go through that at the same time means more than ever we need actual systemic mental health care that is accessible for everybody because this is not something that we can just like wish to go away on its own. Mm -hmm. You bring up such a good point. I mean, this is something that everyone worldwide is dealing with. I know obviously some countries more so than others, but this has touched every aspect of the earth. And so it's like as a human condition, as a symptom, we're all going through this traumatic event. And especially here in the United States, you know, we have gone through traumatic event after traumatic event this whole entire year with the election, with the insurrection, with George Floyd. It was just like one thing after another. And we've just been in a constant crisis response and a constant like trauma management. And I know that I have felt my energy reserves get completely tapped way sooner than they ever did. Like I used to be like, I can work so long. I can get so much done. And now after like three hours of work, I'm like, wow, I'm done for the day. (laughs) And you know, it, it didn't used to be that way, but that's because we're constantly processing everything that's going on in the background at all times. And you're right. This is not over. And I've seen so many, you know, kind of think pieces and and writing about we're here at the one year anniversary and, you know, finding out the distressing news yesterday in Texas that everything's opening up and there's no more mask mandate. And it's just scary because no one's really on the same page about this. Some people are just ready to pretend like this never happened. But as we know, with grief and trauma, I mean, that's just not possible. Like, there will be ramifications for years to come about, you know, everything that's happened. And I think it's really important that we be kind to ourselves, that we advocate for systemic mental health care, because this is something that's going to affect generations and we're going to be dealing with for years and years. And even if we do quote, go back to normal, it's not going to be normal because our relationship to those things will have changed because of everything that has happened in the past year. And obviously those situations are are different now. And, you know, it's just so important that we take care of our mental health and take care of each other during this incredibly difficult time and, and realize that, yes, some people might be more affected than others, but everyone is affected in some kind of way. And we need to acknowledge that instead of just bury it under the sand, pretending like it never happened. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I agree with everything that you said. I mean, we we can't just like will this away. And it, it has been really fascinating um, to see people who have never really experienced chronic depression or anxiety go through this. I mean, a part of me is like, hello, welcome. We've been keeping <laughs> hello, welcome to the world. <laughs> yeah. Welcome. You know, it's funny because I've, I've heard a lot of folks like myself who who suffer from chronic depression and anxiety being like, wow, I'm actually really calm because for the first time ever, <laughs> the world reflects my internal state. Yeah. But, you know what I mean? But it is interesting to see folks who are not used to it. Um, go through all the stages of grief in relation to mm-hmm. it. And, and I know some people who are still in the denial stage one year later. And yeah. you know, just as you say, it's not something that you can bury your head in the sand and expect it's going to go away. We have so much processing and unpacking to do as a world. Yeah. And recently, given everything that's been going on with the pandemic, there have been 
so many horrific crimes against Asian Americans that are happening right now. So much that is COVID related and it is extremely horrifying. And it's also something that I feel like is not getting talked about as much as it should. So I know that you've been fairly outspoken about what is going on in the Asian American (laughs) community, which I think is amazing because this is a really important topic that's happening right now. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on what's going on and, and why do you think it's important and why should we take this seriously? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I agree. It's something that the violence against AAPI is just something that is not being talked about enough. And I'm not entirely sure why. I mean, honestly, a part of me finds it quite offensive because it's it it belittles the AAPI community, but also the BIPOC community. Because if it's like we're only going to talk about systemic racism when it's like a hot buzzworthy topic, that's not doing anti-racist work. That's not fighting systemic racism. That's capitalizing on a, a different group of marginalized folks. So, I mean, immediately the hypocrisy stands out to me. Um, there's this myth of the model minority surrounding the AAPI community of like, well, look at them. They're upstanding citizens. They they stay in line. They assimilate to white culture. And so they're really not any trouble. But like, Obviously, that's not actually how racism works, right? Like, we're all aware of that. It's a myth. I mean, there are a disturbingly large number of people who are like, it is the fault of all Asians that we have COVID, which is insane. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to call a spade like a spade and say that's that's absolutely bonker balls. Like, it's... <laughs> People don't cause COVID. It's a virus that we have to contend with. And while I understand (laughs) that, like, and and I get that people are angry. I get that they're frustrated, that they're depressed, that they feel impotent. But like, there are healthier ways to process those feelings that don't involve being completely horrifically violent to Asian American elders. You know, there's this whole subset in our country right now where I'm like, wow, y'all could really benefit from mental health care. Like, let's talk about why we need mental health care for all right now. Yes. Everybody, you know, I mean, if, if your gut reaction is I am going to go beat up this elderly grandma because I'm mad about COVID. I'm like, there are so many other things that you could do to be addressing that anger and finding relief that don't involve harming somebody else. And yeah, I find it really disturbing that people aren't talking about this because there's a huge uptick. And it's like, so I'm, I am half Asian and it leaves us all feeling like, what do we not matter? So like we've been advocating so much for black and indigenous lives and we have to keep doing that work because those are the two most marginalized races for sure in our world. But it's like, hi, we're also being killed. Um, Hey, white allies, where are you at? Um, I've even seen some folks try to pit uh, BIPOC against AAPI. And I'm like, no, 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 it's not like a one or the other. We all can have equity together. We we don't have to throw our black brothers and sisters under the bus. <laughs> we can we can work towards this problem together. And I encourage all of the white allies listening out there to make sure that they're not accidentally pitting two racial groups against each other throughout all of us. You know, it's it's a, as you can tell, I'm very passionate about this topic because I just flamed about it for a minute there. But it it I it's, <laughs> no, hard it's for such me an important to topic. Yeah, right. I mean, I just don't even have words that people would think that the logical, rational solution to their impotence during COVID is not dealing with their emotions or their grief, but hurting others. That's that's just not a mentality that makes sense to me. 
Totally. And yeah, I just want to go back a little bit just for listeners who may not know, AAPI is Asian American Pacific Islander and BIPOC is Black Indigenous People of Color, just, you know, to make sure everyone's on the same page. And I think you're totally right that we can't use these two, you know, groups against each other. And that's something that is just kind of reversing any progress we have made. And I love that you mentioned that this is kind of part of a larger mental health issue. Because when you think about it, if there's so much violence and hatred geared towards the Asian American community because of COVID, and I mean, let's be honest, probably our former president incited a lot of that hate when he consistently mislabeled the virus, you know, putting it against a certain country. And it's like, people are transferring so much of their anger and resentment and their volatility on one group of people. And they're projecting all of these things. And it's so clear that people just want a scapegoat because I guess somehow they feel better about it. But it's like to lead to this much violence is harrowing. And it's something that we need to be talking about. And yeah, I don't know why it's not on front page news every single day. I feel like, you if know, I'm seeing, speak, um, yeah. if I may cut in and speak about the scapegoat piece, yeah, I think that's the thing, right? Is that actually, as, as so many of our listeners I'm sure have experienced, going through uh, processing your grief and processing a trauma is so much harder than just blaming a group of people. So I'm sorry, but if if you're like, this group of people ruined my life, that is the easy way out. And that's not really doing the work. Um, I also find it interesting because there we've seen uh, uh, circulated things in mainstream China saying that COVID originated in Virginia. So it's funny to see like that juxtaposition from two different countries. And overall, I'm like, this shouldn't be political. Like grief is not political. COVID is not political. These are not political things. These are realities that are being experienced by everybody on this planet right now. Totally. And, you know, I think it's super interesting that people are putting all of their anger and resentment on this one community. When you look at the data and a lot of the Asian countries handled the virus far better than we did here. Way so better. it's like, why are we putting it against this community when you're totally right that the virus is not political, you know, transmission is not political. What's political is the way we've handled this. And, you know, we can see that there has been an abject failure in how we've been able to respond to the pandemic and people's safety and mental health. And, you know, we shouldn't be putting all of this on one racial group and, and the violence needs to stop and the hatred needs to stop because it's not safe for the Asian American community. It's not safe for Asian American elders. I know I've heard from people in various communities that they're scared for their elders. They're scared to go outside and that's no way to live for anyone. And you know, I've also heard and if you may of, speak to that, yeah. like y'all who are listening right now, show up for your Asian American family, friends, colleagues, acquaintances, neighbors, show up for them, check in on them, see if you can go with them to the grocery store, especially check in and see how you can help their elders and double, especially check in and see if there are any differently abled or non-neurotypical Asian Americans out there that you can come and support right now, because they get targeted disproportionately more than others. So show up for your community. It's the best thing that we can do. And, and honestly, just a simple text or a phone call can really 
make a huge impact in someone's day because it makes them feel like they matter. It makes them feel heard and seen and understood. So I, I highly encourage you to do it. It takes such a little effort to really turn somebody's day around. Yes, yes. I'm a huge fan of the thinking of you text or how can I support you or wishing you well, you know, just a, a quick little note. And then also I'd like to add, put your money where your mouth is too. You know, I know so many Asian restaurants have been hit so hard this past year. So, you know, go support um, Asian restaurants, go support Asian owned businesses. Like let's vote with our dollars. You know, this is the mental health and wealth show. We love to talk about money and mental health and money is power. Money is a vote. So we can also support the Asian American community with our money because they've also been hit not just in this area of violence and having to deal with the mental health repercussions of that, but also financially when it comes to to businesses and livelihoods. Yes, support Asian American businesses. One of my favorite dumpling houses, like close to where I live, went out of business and I just found out last night. So like, Mm. please get out, please keep going and supporting and shopping local, support Asian American businesses right now. They need it. This racism has really affected their financial sector. So please go help out. Like you have no idea how your dollars make such a big difference. Yes. So we've kind of, you know, already touched on some of this, but I'm curious if you have any more ideas on, you know, what can allies do? I'm talking specifically about white people. What can allies do to stop Asian American hate and support others? You know what? It's it goes down to money, time, energy, labor. So, you know, the best thing you can do is to support nonprofits or local businesses financially. If you if your pockets are empty, I get it. A lot of us are going through that right now. And then in that case, I recommend you donate time, energy and labor. So what that looks like, let me tell you what that doesn't look like first. That doesn't look like sharing an article on Facebook and being like, I did a good job. That's enough work. (laughs) No, like we all know that doesn't do anything. Occasionally it can start conversations, but it kind of dies off there. If you don't have the money to donate to a local nonprofit working for these causes, then see if you can volunteer. If you feel uncomfortable just because of the current pandemic we're in of volunteering physically, see what you can do virtually. See if um, if you if if you can write emails to any sort of local senators. See what they need and see how you can follow up. Or maybe it's that you create a fundraiser and you encourage your friends and family to donate to that if you can't donate yourself. As I said, you know, labor is so important. There are, I think everybody is really willing to donate and just like kind of throw money at a problem and hope it goes away. But the people who are really putting in like the blood, sweat and tears to make this happen are just as important. So don't rule out volunteer work right now as like a not viable thing when people are more than willing to help work with you, what you feel comfortable with, what you're able to do. Um, it's, It's such an inclusive space and I highly recommend everybody consider doing it. Yes, I think that's so important that you mention, you know, what people can do if they don't have money, because yes, we are in COVID, there's been so much job loss and income loss, and totally understand if you're not in a place financially to give, if you are fantastic, do it, do more than you think you should. But also, you know, there's so many other ways to help. And a lot of times people think, oh, well, if I do this, like, it's not going to matter times that by like a hundred thousand people, a million people, and then people do nothing. But imagine if everyone just did a little bit, it has a ripple effect and a compounding effect similar to money, similar to interest that builds this wealth of experience and prosperity to help heal us out of this situation. 
Exactly. I look at it the same as voting. Like we can all sit here and be like, yeah, my vote doesn't matter. But if enough people say that, it really does actually start to add up. So please know that even if you feel like what you're doing is very little, like you are contributing and that's important. Yes. Yeah. So for anybody listening, I definitely think reaching out to your Asian American friends, colleagues, peers saying, I'm thinking of you. How can I support you? Uh, donating financially, giving your time and energy and support, and also speaking out against what is going on. You know, racism is not okay. Hatred is not okay. And sometimes that requires having uncomfortable conversations. I know a lot of us in the past year have had uncomfortable conversations with people who have disagreed with our politics or, you know, people that we feel are against human rights. And that is awkward to speak up. And sometimes you just want to run away. But sometimes having that conversation, like that is what can potentially change someone's perspective on things. Exactly. Exactly. Have the conversations, explain to folks who may not be understanding that it's important, why it's important. Um, Please don't leave that on the shoulders of AAPI alone, like especially to all my white allies out there have those conversations. You have no idea how helpful that is. Yes. Yes. It's so important. And yes, I agree. White people need to take more of a stand. And, you know, something that I've said before is that the things that affect these communities of color, you know, they cannot be the the solution to the problem when they didn't even create the problem. Right. Exactly. Thank you. Yes. if, If white people are creating the problem, then we need to do the labor to find the solution. We can't just be like, oh, this is a problem for Black people and Asian American communities. So they're the ones that need to constantly be talking about it. It's like, this is so, you know, with any ism, racism, sexism, you know, it's like women can't solve the patriarchy. Um, People of color can't solve racism. But we need to be doing that work and acknowledging our privilege and, and where we can actually try to support. And, you know, it's super important and it can be really awkward, but it's a really a great time for growth and understanding and, and sticking up for your beliefs and really working to make a change. Exactly. I love that. I absolutely love that. The onus should not be on the victims to solve the problem that was created by perpetrators. Yes. (laughs) Yes. It's too much emotional labor and that just adds to any mental health issues. It's like, there's already so much grief and trauma that is being processed. And then to have to try to have the strength to carry you know, this awareness and this solution, it's just too much. So definitely we need to stand. Yeah, it goes back to those, it goes back to those concentric circles of grief again, right? Mm-hmm. You don't ask the smaller circle to do the labor that you could do. Yes, yes. I'm so glad you brought that image to mind. Like that's such an important and easy to understand image. And I think that's really useful for when you're like, well, how come I have to do it? Well, that's, <laughs> that's reason why. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a nice visual. Yeah, I think it helps. I I think that we all like to have a bit of a framework to work with. And it's nice to like, have that as a just quick, easy to understand visual, like, where am I positionally in this moment? Am I centering myself in this conversation? What can I do to not do that and to help people who are actually at the center? Yes, yes. Love it. Thank you so much for sharing all of your tips on how we can combat what is going on right now. I think it's really important for everyone listening to do your research on what is going on in the Asian American community and find a way that you can support in whatever works with your energy, time and financial resources. 
And so I wanted to shift gears a little bit. So you are an actress and you recently played alongside Denzel Washington, which I'm so jealous because he is amazing (laughs) and also very handsome. (laughs) Um, I actually have a degree in theater and acting, which I don't use because I can't take the ego. Like the ego stuff is so hard for my mental health, like the constant rejection, the auditions, like it's so hard. And I was like, you know what? I can do this in a different way. And I'm, I created my own path as, you know, a writer and all this other stuff. So I, I'm fine. But, you know, I definitely have a passion for theater, the arts, acting. And so I so admire what you're doing. I think it's amazing that you've had experiences with Denzel Washington and so many amazing other people in the community. So I'm curious to know how your experience you know, as an actress in Hollywood has affected your mental health or like any tips for people who are in industries that deal with a lot of rejection? Yeah. Um, God, I mean, I, I think, I think it really all boils down to a mindset shift. Um, and I'm going to apply this sort of the title of your podcast, mental health and wealth. I think that mental wealth is actually a really important thing that we should talk about. Um, Mm. You know, there's there's two types of mindsets. I don't always like to be binaristic, mind you, but I think this visual helps. There's an abundance mindset and there's a lack mindset. With the lack mindset, it's like there's not enough opportunity. Oh, my God, you have to, like, cut down the competition to make it. And the abundance mindset is there's more than enough time and there's more than enough opportunity for everybody. And so if this job doesn't work out, that's okay. There will be others. Now, listen, there is a lot of financial privilege that I think um, is needed to be able to adopt an abundance mindset. I'm not going to pretend like this is an easily accessible thing for everybody, right? Because it's not. Like I, I work multiple different jobs so that if I a year like 2020 is super slow for acting, I'm okay, if I didn't have that to fall back on, then I probably would easily fall into a lack and desperation mindset. But really, like the way I've always approached it is like, I haven't invested much financially into this. So if I go into that room, like I don't have anything to lose. And I think that's the key is like, what can you do if it's something that you're passionate about to actually factor your ego out of the equation? You know, thinking about like, Let's see. Originally, I did not actually study um, acting in college. I studied music, and I found like I was I was just kind of like acting for fun at the beginning, like just for whatever's. And mm-hmm. I found that my acting auditions were so much different than any time I would gig for music. Like with music, I felt like I had the weight of my financial investment and my degree on my shoulders. Like I have oh, to, prove, yeah. you know, you're like mm-hmm. I have to prove that that was a worthwhile investment. Whereas with acting, I was like, I've invested zero, like it doesn't matter. This is just fun. And being able to come into that space in like such a light way, of course, then made me extremely castable because people were like, hey, she's not bringing her mental baggage into the room. She's just like, hi, how can I help you? What's up? I'm happy to be here. So I think it's an interesting thing, especially for artists or other creatives out there, you know, working in this gig economy. Like we want to prove that doing this was worthwhile, but if you're bringing that desire to prove into the room, people are like, that's a lot. And I, I don't have the energy to work with that. And it's not that they're dismissing your feelings, like your feelings are totally valid. It's just that they have multi-million dollar problems they need to solve, (laughs) you know? So it's like anything that could potentially take up that energy away from 
their focus, they're looking for everybody to be a solution. And so mm-hmm. the way I walk in the room is just with a continued like, hey, this is fun. And anything here on up is bonus points. Like I approached my entire career with a bonus point mentality. And I think that's why things happened for me so quickly. Again, I'm not trying to erase my own like privilege out of the conversation because that's important to note and and to say that not everybody has the ability to dive in the way that I did. But I will say that if there is any way for you to be able to see, okay, maybe I don't have total financial privilege, but how can I work on my mindset so that I am taking care of myself and also just letting everybody in the room know that it's cool? It really does wonders for your mental health. Um, I think it's just about lowering the stakes, right? Like if you're in a constant state of like anxiety and panic and fight or flight gets activated, yeah, of course that's absolute trash for your mental health. But if you're able to go in and be like, this is a weird, fun thing, like then the stakes are low enough that it really doesn't affect me if I don't book a job. I love so many points that you brought up and especially, you know, this kind of like walking into a space and just seeing what you can gain out of a situation. And, you know, I think about this a lot in business when I pitch myself to a new client or an opportunity and, you know, it's not quite the same because it's all on the internet and I feel like live in person has a little more, you know, weight to it, but still the same concept is what do you have to gain? Because right now, let's say you don't have any acting gigs, you don't have any writing clients, you don't have any business, whatever, insert whatever your thing is. But if you go to an audition, if you pitch yourself, if you do X, Y, Z, if they don't respond or they say no, your reality is actually the same. If they say yes, then you have nothing but something to gain, right? And so it's like you do have things to gain if you put yourself out there. And even if you get rejected, even if you you don't get a response, that doesn't change your current reality. And that's something that has helped me whenever I get kind of scared of, putting myself out there or pitching myself. And it's like, you know what, if they say no, or they ignore me, literally nothing in my life has changed. But if they say yes, then that will be a positive change. So, you know, I think it is important to kind of take your ego out of it. And the point that you brought up of like going into a space and being like, I need to prove myself, I need to prove that my degree was worth it. You know, (laughs) I spent $80,000 going to school in NYU and there's so much pressure of like, I have to make this worth it. But yeah, if you're going into a room, like you're carrying that energy and it's like, you're transferring a boulder to them and being like, here, can you show me that I'm worth it? Can you carry this for me? But I love what you mentioned about being a solution to their problems, because that's also another thing in business, in life, that you need to be a solution to someone else's problem. And so if you can go into a space and show them that, hey, I'm the solution to your problem, I can make this work, rather than like, look at me, I'm trying so hard, please, please, please tell me I'm worth it, validate me. (laughs) And and that's all your mental health baggage, you know, like, I think part of the reason why I couldn't handle it is because I I still had a lot of baggage I was dealing with back then. And and rejection felt extremely personal for me. Mm -hmm. And it's probably bringing up some other crap that I hadn't dealt with yet. And so I also love the kind of air of experimentation that you go into these things. I think, you know, just going into spaces and thinking, this is an experiment. We'll see what happens. Let's just see. And having that kind of lightness to it can really, really help. So thank you so much for sharing all of that. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I'd love to 
uh, speak further to one of the things you said, I think I want to take it a step further from what can I gain from this and actually encourage everybody listening, because this applies to all of y'all's job interviews. Um, Think about how can I help you? Let that be the question in your mind next time you go into an interview and watch the magic happen. If you really focus on decentering yourself in that moment and actually being vulnerable enough to be like, I'm going to put the company that I am interviewing for first and foremost, how can I help you? How can I be the solution to your problem? What can I do to help you today? You're going to watch that interviewer just completely relax. There's going to be so much ease in the room. It's going to be a conversation between two equals rather than what happens when you center yourself in those moments and have something to prove being ego driven. You're now asking the interviewer to sort of take care of you. So I recommend all of y'all try that next time you're in an interview. I, you know, and obviously like message me when you book the job or when you hire, or when you're hired, <laughs> yeah. it's going to happen. It's, it's magic. It's magic. Yes. Yes. Such a great tip. Such a great tip. So you are an actress, you know, you just completed lots of wonderful films. And so I imagine being an actress, you know, you have a lot of kind of variable income and I'm sure in 2020 that was, you know, variable more um, than usual. So I'm curious, how do you manage living on a variable income? Do you have any tips for other creatives and other people who might be living with different incomes every month? You know, you just got to, you got to widen the net for your own income. I I have, as I said, I, I have multiple different sort of like gig economy jobs that I work to fill in the gaps when need be. I think that work from home and virtual work has really opened us up to more options for that. So, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Yes, that is so important and something that I definitely recommend in my personal finance writing and coaching is diversify your income streams, you know, because then if something happens with one of them, you still have the others. You know, I know a lot of people when I quit my nonprofit job to become a freelance writer and solopreneur and content creator, all the things that I'm doing now, people are kind of like, oh my gosh, you're giving up a steady job. Like, what are you doing? And it's like, actually, I feel more stable as a freelancer than I did before because I have had clients walk away or, you know, saying we don't have the budget for this anymore, X, Y, Z, but then I still have five other clients that I can rely on and I can go pitch myself for other opportunities. And theoretically the income is limitless, right? Whereas if you have one stream of income, if you have one stream of income with a nine to five and you get, you know, fired or, or furloughed, it's like your whole investment has just been on pause and that can be extremely difficult and and hard for your mental health and wealth when everything just kind of comes to a a pause like that absolutely i couldn't agree more love it love it love it so i'm curious to know what are you working on now or what are you working on next and where can people find you and support you Absolutely. So guys, I'm so excited to tell you about this. I've been working on this great project um, since August with two uh, people who are celebrities in the video game voiceover world, Ellen McLean and John Lowry. Ellen is known for her work on the hit game Portal, and John Lowry is known for his work on everything, I swear to goodness. They're they're the two most lovely humans. So we have been adapting um, a play by Marsha Norman called Night Mother and adapting it to be a feature film. So the play is actually, it's pretty dark. It's about mental health and suicide and sort of overlapping needs. It really takes place between two, like the whole play is just two women 
both sort of fighting to get their needs met, a mother and a daughter, a mother who uh, is narcissistic and feels like she is chronically unheard and a daughter who says, you know, today is the day that I am committing suicide. Um, So just trigger warnings all over this, if this is something that Mm -hmm. is traumatic to you. But we have reset the play to actually take place during the pandemic. So as I said, it's a feature film. Yes, we we wanted to use the Zoom platform in a way that doesn't feel exhausting to everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Not just filming on Zoom, but also actually having external camera angles and really filming it like a movie, but having it be like if you had 45 minutes to really say everything on your heart before really making that dark choice, what would you say? And we're hoping that this film can be a springboard to talk about like everything I've been saying throughout this podcast, how we have a pandemic of mental health and mental illness that is coming for us. And we need to start having these conversations and prioritize mental health care. So if you would like to follow me and follow progress of when the film is filmed and when it's released, you can check out my Instagram, which is just at Sheba Houlihan. Um, yeah, I would, I would love to, I'd, I can't wait to share this film with everybody. It's going to be great. And I think we're going to be doing a live version of it on Twitch as well. The sort of experiment with that. Yes, fancy, fancy. So yeah. That sounds so interesting. I love it. And I think that's so beautiful that you guys are getting creative with the times and kind of different ways to create art. I think that's something that has been so beautiful to watch in isolation and in COVID is people getting so creative with how can we tell these new stories in different ways. Yeah, exactly. And and really like letting Zoom be part of the conversation rather than a crutch has been really fun. Yes, yes. Make it more fun, please. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm curious, do you have anything else you'd like to share with our audience about mental health and wealth? Any parting words? Just take care of yourselves, everybody. I mean, recognize that we're coming up on the one year anniversary of quarantine, like I said, with how the acute turns into the chronic at that phase. Take extra self-care this month. Be gentle with yourself. Validate your emotions if they feel bigger right now. Take those naps where you can. I mean, just be kind to yourselves and be kind to others right now. I love it. I love it. And I'm totally going to put you on the spot and you can totally say no. (laughs) But I'm curious, would you be willing to sing a little bit for our audience? Or you're just like, nah, not today. I could. I could do a quick ditty. Yeah, I would love it. We we had another singer, my friend Cassandra Dason, and she just did a beautiful job. And I think it's just so wonderful for mental health right now to hear live music. That is something that I miss so much is being in a small club or bar and listening to jazz or singers. So if yeah. if you'd like. Sure. Um, sure. I can sing a, a really short one. This is one of my favorites. It's No Choir by Florence and the Machine which is just about like happiness doesn't have to be this big dramatic thing that it can be little small moments, which I think we all relate to, especially this year. So this is no choir. And it's hard to write about being happy because the older I get, I find that happiness is an extremely uneventful subject. And there would be no grand choirs to sing. No chorus would come in about two people sitting doing nothing but i must confess i did it all for myself i gathered you here to hide from some vast unnameable fear 
And the loneliness never left me. I always took it with me, but I can put it down in the pleasure of your company. And there would be no grand choir to sing, no chorus would come in, no ballad would be written, it'll be entirely forgotten. And if tomorrow it's all over, at least we had it for a moment. Oh darling, things seem so unstable, but for a moment we were able to be still. And there would be no grand choir to sing, no chorus could come in, no ballad would be written, it'll be entirely forgotten. Wow, you are a phenomenal singer and I have tears in my eyes and I'm so happy that was such a beautiful experience. Thank you so much for sharing that. You are so talented. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. I love that song. I think it really matches my mental state this year. So thanks for listening. No, it was so beautiful. And I so appreciate you sharing your time and your talent. And I totally just put you on the spot. So I appreciate you (laughs) being willing to oblige and share your talent with us. So thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's so great to talk. and, And thank you all for listening. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Want more content and support? Sign up for the Mental Hump newsletter and get our free mental health and money inventory worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. Also, we host a mental health and wealth hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. The best part, it is free. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.